парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and find that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner of the website and press it and join the table of ranks. So this week we have a really interesting interview as part of this series I've been doing at Reese. Um, this is an interview I recorded with Nancy Adler for the series Openness, Acceleration, Restructuring, the Soviet 1980s. And, and of course, in thinking putting together this series, I felt that we needed to do something on the historical memory of Stalinism, and particularly Memorial, especially since the Russian government closed that organization uh, early this year. So, uh, Margaret, why don't we jump into things and have you introduce Nancy? Mm -hmm. So, Nancy Adler is a professor of memory, history, and transitional justice at Nyad Institute for War, Holocaust, and Genocide Studies at the University of Amsterdam. She's authored and or edited several works, with her most recent edited volume being The Future of the Soviet Past, The Politics of Memory and Putin's Russia, published by Indiana University Press. Her current research focuses on transitional justice, the legacy of communism, and the history of Memorial Human Rights Organization. Here's Nancy Adler. So... You know, you have been writing about historical memory, the legacies of repression, transitional justice. You've written about Memorial. You're back to revisiting those questions in the history of that really important organization. And you've been doing this, you know, really for a couple of decades. So I'm, you know, curious, what what attracted you to dealing with these issues of of memory, transitional justice and the like? What attracted me um, is that when I started uh, when I started on this topic in 88, 89, the victims started speaking and I met them. Uh, I, I started to observe uh, um, meetings of the organization Memorial and, and people who had been silent for decades started to speak. And I really came to recognize that they were not just victims, but they were survivors. And they were survivors that had survived decades of post-camp repression. So it made me start thinking about what it was to be a victim and what it was to be a survivor in a system that still existed, in the same political system that had incarcerated them. And it was a kind of a I would say a strange time to be a Western researcher of this theme. Uh, I know very early on, um, as much as they wanted to tell their stories, they also said, well, you know, you're writing your dissertations with our blood. So I was made very conscious and self-conscious about my own, uh, about my own role there. But I, um, I had access to so many of the, of the leaders of Memorial and of their constituency that we kind of got used to 
to talking to each other and they got used to me. So um, I thought it was very important to start documenting these testimonies and then to analyze these testimonies. And if, if you ask, how did that lead to the larger uh, questions of transitional justice? Um, I wanted to understand how individuals and societies cope with the legacy of mass political repression. So um, yeah, if I could, you, you mentioned my books, I had three major research projects, the, the one um, following Memorial and the second one on return to society from the Gulag, was the Gulag survivor. And the third major project was about those who uh, entered and exited the Gulag with their belief in the communist party still intact. That was the short answer to your question. <laughs> I, I want to. I actually want to talk about this issue of when they said to you, you know, you're writing, you're publishing on our blood, using our blood, and and you know, scholars like yourself who are dealing with these very traumatic issues, where you know, people, people, victims, survivors of these crimes are the research subject. How do you? How do you? Like, how are you aware of your positionality? And how do you deal with this issue of, you know, being sensitive to people's traumatic experience and the legacies of that? Uh, well, first of all, I think you have to learn to be a very uh, good listener. Uh, there's also any of us who have done work in Russia know that you have to come fia fia. You, you, you can't just show up and say, I'm going to interview. You have to come through a trusted source because no one trusts anyone. Um, you also have to, in terms of positionality, be very much aware that you are not in charge of the interview situation as much as you'd like to be. So, for example, when I was interviewing uh, about the post-camp experience, I would go to people's homes. We would spend probably three hours um, getting to know each other, but they would be talking to me about the experience in the camp. And I really wanted to get to the post-camp experience. So I couldn't just say, well, could we move on now? And uh, uh, so I uh, inevitably, I had to go back several times to people and we would pick up where we left off. And then obviously they went back to the most traumatic experience, which was the camp setting. And I tried to move them into the post-camp setting, but I had, well, clearly um, yeah, something like 30 years experience. So you do get to know what works and what doesn't work. And um, you mentioned Memorial. Uh, I will uh, never forget, and I show this as a slide to my oral history uh, students, my first interview with the leader of Memorial, and I'm pretty sure we'll get to him, uh, Arseniy Raginsky. Uh, I went to Moscow for the first uh, ever international oral history conference, and I wanted to catch him in the hallway. He said he would, he would give me an interview, and I'm standing there with a heavy Marantz tape recorder on my arm. I've got a notepad on top of it. I'm scribbling notes. He's eating ice cream in the hallway. Um, there's a picture of this, and I thought this is not how to do an interview. Um, but we we progressed uh, uh, in leaps and bounds uh, through the decades with each other. Um, well, I'm sure, we'll get back to him. Well, that that is that is a nice memory, even with the ice cream cone. <laughs> yeah, he he really he really did not. Uh, he sort of had the same attitude, but it was kind of like, yeah, what, what now? What, what, what could you possibly be looking for here? Yeah. 
this this fray this concept of transitional justice i've encountered it many times i have a, a friend who who writes about it too but i've i've never really delved into what exactly it is so what is uh, transitional justice yeah uh, Sean, that is a very good question first of all it's a misnomer uh, because it may not even be suggesting transition and it doesn't always have to do with justice uh, my approach, uh, and that of many historians, is to look at the broader umbrella theme of uh, all of the ways, all of the legal and non-legal mechanisms that we have for uh, approaching a, uh, a past, a post-repression, post-genocide, uh, post-dictatorial past. What are the ways, so for example, the retributive justice model, which would be trials, restorative justice would be truth commissions. Russia chose a, a totally untrodden path. The only, the only mechanism it used was rehabilitation. It was essentially exonerating uh, victims of crimes they never committed uh, without ever really discussing uh, who or what did commit them. So it was one of these, uh, it, it, it didn't really involve any, any discussion on culpability. Uh, Transitional justice also involves commemoration, uh, renaming of streets, taking, uh, taking down uh, statues, all kinds of mechanisms. And if we look at the broad range, and that's how I became interested, because Russia is such a glaring non-case of transitional justice. And there's lots you can learn from non-cases of transitional justice. And and why is it, why is why is this important, these acts of commemoration, whether it be rehabilitation, trials, um, you know, some of these rehabilitations are, are posthumous, right? Uh, what, is, what is the larger purpose of, of going through these processes? Well, to begin with, and then I come back to how I started uh, in the first place, to honor the victims, um, because it, it, it is at some level a recognition, uh, however, let's say, um, however few privileges are attendant to that status in, in Russia, it is still recognizing that they did not the, uh, commit the crimes uh, for which they were incarcerated and sometimes spent 10 or 17 years in the gulag. So it, it kind of takes the stain off the record, uh, why that would be important, such as uh, something like rehabilitation. But um, obviously, um, having roads uh, or cities renamed would also be important to those who felt they suffered at the hands of the regime. So they're not reminded of, of, of a street name of a perpetrator. Zerzhinsky standing in, uh, uh, in the middle of Lubyanka Square, he, he was the head of the Cheka, taking him down. That's part of a whole, let's say, socio-cultural evolution. Yeah, I also, I also um, imagined it to be also about drawing a red line of sorts for society as a whole in the sense of the, rec the collective recognition that these crimes occurred, they were persecuted or perpetrated by these processes of our society, and we are moving forward beyond that. And, and, and therefore, we can never go, that red line prevents us from going backward. Um, that's a very good description for societies that undertake transitional justice. I got a little distracted because I was, I was addressing Russia and transitional justice, which we can do later. But in general, it is considered 
to be uh, with, with the ascent of the human rights discourse, it is considered to be, let's say the right thing to do is to confront uh, uh, the crimes of predecessor regimes. And in that way, as a society, we can move forward, we can honor the victims, we can punish the perpetrators, we can offer uh, restitution, compensation, we can search for looted art and get it back to uh, the, the descendants of the original owners, if there are any. Uh, we can put stones on the pavement with names on them of the victims who were deported, never to return. We can think that can become part of the social fabric of, of the consciousness of the public, of, of the history of their regime. That's why it's, it's important. And it's important so that um, perpetrators, I mean, so, so that there's no impunity so that there's some sense and there's a, a tiny bit of a prevention uh, uh, written into the transitional justice formula that, that perhaps some warlord somewhere might be afraid to be taken to the Hague if he, if he commits X number of acts. Um, it doesn't really work very well, actually, that, that part of transitional justice. But it is the idea of working with the past, working through the past, and not um, not uh, ignoring it or having amnesia about it. That that one mechanism has not tended to work. Yeah, yeah. And we'll talk a bit more about that in, in a bit. Now, there have been, you know, a couple of key moments in Soviet history where the history of Stalinism was tried to be confronted, but perestroika really stands out as as a as one of those major ones. What place did documenting Stalinist repression have in perestroika, in your view? You know, at the time, I was actually sort of critical of Gorbachev uh, because I thought he didn't go far enough. Uh, and it turns out, actually, that between 88 and 90, that was kind of the high point of the revelations on Stalinism. And as I said, I was able to hear all of these voices just, just coming out of everywhere. Um, I do think at a certain point, the revelations became a little bit of a destabilizer because they certainly ask, they, they certainly question the legitimacy of the system. And, and Perestroika still rested on that. It was still the Soviet government. And I had some evidence of that uh, only in the 90s. I found um, uh, a document, Politburo Proceedings from November 88. And Gorbachev um, says, you know, what is this organization Memorial? Uh, the state felt threatened by the revelations and they wanted to control uh, the story of how the past was to be told. So at the time, Memorial, and I, I could get to that in a moment, Memorial was experiencing all kinds of obstacles from the state. So Gorbachev came up with an idea. He said, let's not register it centrally. Let's not let there be a large legal entity called Memorial. We'll keep it in the hands of regional uh, divisions of Memorial and we'll keep that under party control. That way we get to tell what the narrative of the past is. So there was a, an ambivalence because it was Gorbachev himself who at the 70th um, anniversary of the revolution said, we know there were thousands of victims. Okay, gross understatement. But basically, he gave the green light to go out and, and find out the numbers. So, so researchers and Memorial poured out into the streets uh, um, and, and massively started collecting information and documentation. 
And that was one of the uh, greatest feats of the Gorbachev period, um, that, that this documentation, it was there and it was out. We didn't have internet, but it was out in the open. We had newspapers. They were very active and the dissidents certainly knew how to spread the word. Yeah, the, the archive, the, the, the goal of preserving that past, those testimonies, those experiences, those crimes, I think is, is really a, a service to the world for uh, in Memorial's um, efforts to do this throughout its existence. Well, let's talk about it because it really is an important development, this founding of this organization, Memorial, um, you know, one of the first uh, uh, human rights organizations in um, the Soviet Union slash Russia and a principal figure uh, in the founding of this organization is Arseniy Rogozsky, uh, Roginsky, sorry, Roginsky. I had it and I lost it. So Arseniy Roginsky. Um, who was he? Yeah, he was, um, he was a dissident. Um, but let me start with uh, where he was born. Um, he was born just outside the Gulag. His father had been a Gulag uh, a prisoner was released um, and imprisoned again, and his father died in the gulag. So Roginsky was born in the in the zone around the camp. Um, he uh, grew up with that awareness, um, and in the um, 70s, he started to befriend uh, dissidents who were gathering information on repressions. And he started to join a group called uh, uh, Chronicle of Current Events. And he realized that the repression of ideas was also half, is, it was the repression of people, but also the repression of ideas. And he started getting more and more active with people who would eventually become the leaders of Memorial in the late 80s. But going back a little bit, he, uh, he, was, he became a historian. He was doing research. He wanted to know also about uh, other political groups besides, uh, besides the Bolsheviks. Um, and he was trying to research into his father's past, and he forged papers to get into an archive, and he was arrested. He was arrested in 1981. Uh, he uh, was offered the chance to immigrate. They said, you can go, please, please go. He said, no, I'm not going to go. And he was sent to the Gulag. And there were, by the way, at the time, there were many attempts uh, also by the West to uh to rescue him. Um, I was at Columbia University. I think we sent an invitation for him to be a visiting professor. He wanted to stay in Russia. He was sent to the Gulag, um, went to, uh, in the four years he was there, he went to five camps. And I, I wanted to, because he's, he's a rather special individual in the history of repression, I wanted to just read a little excerpt from one of our interviews, what he told me about his camp experience, because I think that it really um, it really says something about uh, the prisoner experience. He said, I probably knew more about the gulag than all the dissidents combined. But the first time I entered a cell, that horrible world, despite all of my erudition and all of my knowledge, I felt like I was an absolutely helpless child who knew nothing. I had never really asked about the camps. I asked about internal life and philosophy and heard about the external horrors. But I never realized the main thing, that camp is degradation from the first moment to the last. 
and all of camp life comes down to a struggle to resist humiliation. People talk about the rats, but what is not in a standard memoir is that the individual is completely trampled upon. The camp is a place for collective loneliness. So he got out in 85 and uh, he started to become active in uh, gathering manuscripts. And in 87, Memorial or a group of 11 people started to gather signatures for a monument to the victims of repression, just a monument. But then it quickly expanded into the idea of a monument and a research center. Um, and then that started to resemble a social movement. Um, so uh, the monument, actually, the monument did come in 1990. It's a huge boulder from the first labor camp under Lenin, the Solovetsky Island labor camp. And uh, that was standing uh, for one year on the same square as Dzerzhinsky, the head of the Cheka, the two, the two Russias standing, as Anna Akhmatova would say, eyeball to eyeball, those who were imprisoned and those who put them there. So Raginsky, um, he continued to lead Memorial for decades. He became an, uh, really a, an elder statesman. Uh, he feared for the last 10 years, and I had a lot of contact with him. We actually became very good friends. He feared for Memorial. He was quite prescient about the creeping deterioration of academic freedom, but he also really feared for Memorial. And he said, it wouldn't be um, hard to liquidate the organization. He said this in 2016. He said they could just kill us with fines. Ironically, Memorial ended up being liquidated through legislation. It takes me right back full circle to what Gorbachev was trying to do in the beginning, controlling history. This is not a popular message that Memorial has. And just to, 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 to complete the description of Memorial, it also became the major, uh, uh, Russia's most respected human rights organization, and it's the most authoritative research center on Stalinism. You know, its activities before the collapse of the Soviet Union are, are incredibly significant for the preservation, and we've talked about, you know, th this so far, but Memorial also plays a really important role in the post-Soviet, in post-Soviet Russia, particularly around its activities with the Chechen war. Um, so talk about what, what, is, what else did, did more Memorial do uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Right, well, first of all, it continued this very important uh, documentation task. Um, it, it really put together a tremendous archive on Soviet repression. In fact, in the early 90s, um, I helped get a bunch of microfilms, about 30,000 dossiers, to the Institute of Social History in Amsterdam, just to have a, a little bit of a safe haven for, uh, for, for that archive. They, um, so they continued documentation. A couple of the Memorial researchers, Arseny Raginsky and the vice president of Memorial Scientific Information Center, Nikita Petrov, gained access to the KGB archives. So they were in the mid nineties in this archival revolution time. So they were able to, uh, to do a lot of research on, uh, let's say, the chain of command and the mechanisms and the Katyn killers, things like that. Very important uh, research materials they found. And it mean, in the meantime, 
Memorial was starting some of the more Western European traditions, like the um, the reading of names uh, on the Day of Political Prisoners, which is at the end of October every year. From 10 o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock at night, they read, uh, everyone can come and read prisoners' names. I've taken part in it twice. Um, and it's just one way of commemorating. And they've, for years, it's existed since 2007, they've had obstruction every year by the authorities. And they've still managed to do it, uh, had managed to do it. Uh, other other campaigns toward commemoration are the last address campaign where um, there were plaques put on each of the, um, the buildings where residents had been taken away, much like the German Stolperstein and the stumbling blocks. Also, of course, resistance, resistance from the authorities and resistance from residents to having these reminders of the repression hanging outside their building wall. They um, did some very important forensic investigation in mass grave sites. Um, also, Memorial researchers paid dearly for that. We're probably familiar with the case of Dmitriev, uh, who, Yuri Dmitriev, who is now uh, in prison uh, for uh, increasing numbers of years for his work around the Sondermore forest near uh, Karelia, in Karelia, where there are probably 9,000 victims uh, buried in mass pits of the NKVD. So they're, they're the mass grave sites, the archive, the commemorative activities, they continued to do oral histories with survivors. And when the survivors were no longer around, they continued to, uh, to do oral histories with the second generation. Um, they've also done exhibitions, uh, taking part in all kinds of public events, film screenings. Um, yeah, actually, uh, one of the last film screenings was this past fall, I think in uh, October or November. Um, it was a film on the on the famine, and during the film screening at Memorial Headquarters, thugs broke in and uh, stopped the screening, threatened uh, the Memorial Associates, and they told me they were more they were almost more afraid of the police than the than than the thugs that had broken into the headquarters. They were locked in. Um, they tried to uh, connect not just, they tried to connect past human rights violations with present human rights violations. And you had already mentioned their investigative work in, uh, in, in Chechnya. They have always been, um, yeah, they've always had that dual, that dual task, even if there was a separate human rights, it's simply the suggestion of what we can learn about the repressive nature of the system if we study the past. And finally, they've had, um, conferences, uh, both in Russia, international conferences, um, lots of publications, and of course, their tremendous archive, um, unprecedented archive. You know, you mentioned this, uh, you know, this, the controversy around and the harassment and the jailing in many cases, and then of course, the liquidation of the organization around its revelations and collecting the memory of Stalinist repression. You also have a creeping uh, you know, rehabilitation of sorts of Stalin in um, Russia today. Why is this, this moment, why is Stalinism and Stalinist repression still controversial in Russian society? Why is it controversial? I mean, there was never 
of course, a judgment of uh, Stalin or Stalinism. There was a there was an opportunity, and I get back then to the transitional justice discussion. There was an opportunity in 1992 when there was a hearing on the constitutionality of a ban on the Communist Party. This would have been an opportunity for a Russian Nuremberg to judge the crimes of the party. And it never got beyond this issue at hand and actually it accomplished nothing. So the Communist Party was allowed to exist. The crimes were never talked about. In fact, we had... Uh, when the state in 2017, when Putin, standing next to Patriarch Kirill, opened the state-sponsored monument to the victims, finally, um, Stalin's name was never mentioned. Uh, victims were mentioned um, and losses as if, as if catastrophe hit. So Stalin's name was never mentioned. Uh, and Putin said, this is not the time to be settling scores. And there has been a creeping rehabilitation of Stalin. Then we uh, really, the, the, the image of Stalin, we've seen him in the metro on buses um, and in, in statues, local societies. There's so um, Memorial was not able to counter that with information. Um, and it's, yeah. Uh, I guess I, I, just to push a little bit of this because, you know, this seems to why the present day authorities care about this these issues. Now, on the one hand, I understand the World War II thing, and the World War II is the you know biggest secular holiday in Russia today. But still, um, you know, I, I don't. I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around why they can't use revelations of Stalinist repression as a springboard for constructing. A new Russia. Um, I know. I, I know it's a very naive idea. <laughs> Fine, but this is for questioning purposes. <laughs> well, that was, of course, that was the hope of Memorial that there would be a sort of working together on an on an accurate history of which of which Russians could be proud. Um, but it was very hard to actually show the scope of the terror and give a positive spin to that. So there's been a great effort already, quite clearly since 2005, uh, with, with Putin's statement about the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, and then ascending from there into the narrative of the textbooks, whereby even the numbers uh, were, uh, teachers were instructed on how to how to manipulate numbers. For example, don't count as victims of the Soviet terror those who were released to die just outside the camps. We'll, we'll, we'll leave those numbers aside or those, those, let's just count those who were executed, three quarters of a million between 37 and 38. And then the other numbers, well, they, they really weren't gulag uh, victims. There has been um, an inability and an unwillingness of the state to take this into a story that um, could make up the national narrative. In South Africa, made uh, there was a kind of a shared history created by an exercise of this of this truth commission, where different sides told their stories. And it's 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 also part of of um, there's a, an initiative at Columbia um, historical dialogues where you can kind of look for areas of agreement and disagreement um, and. 
and try to analyze the facts of the past and try to do that together. In Russia, this has not been possible. And in consequence, there has been just a selection. You don't even need to, um, you could just omit facts and then you get a completely different picture. So let's look at the 30s about what we accomplished. Not Stalin's crimes, but let's look at industrialization, the eradication of illiteracy and forties, the victory in the great patriotic war. There can be no talk of anything else. And of course, lately um, there's been, uh, uh, it, it's, it's criminal to equate Stalinism with Nazism. So that already says, leave the scope of Stalinism aside. And that's one of the great challenges that Memorial also brought to the state. It said, Stalinism wasn't just those years between 24 and 53. One might also call Stalinism the period from 1917 until, until 1991, the whole Soviet period, the kind of illegal methods of government, the governance that characterized the Soviet period. So that's something that um, uh, Memorial challenged the state to look at that past. And the state said, no, we don't need to look at that past. We did a lot of, we did a lot of great things. We have a very bright past. And as many of us who've studied communism know, there was always that, you know, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to make a bright future together. And, and when the bright future never arrived, and there was no delivery date, but it didn't come. So then there was a reconceptualization to, to making this the bright past. And Memorial served as a constant reminder of, of the not so bright past. And there, there would indeed be ways to make a brighter future by looking at that bright past instead of by saying, no, those bodies in, 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 in the killing fields there, they were, they were not the NKVD. They were, they were done by the Finns or they were done by the, they were killed by the Germans. So the state has very systematically um, worked against them. And in fact, when um, Memorial um, was taken to court in uh, uh, December, and when they actually lost the appeal um, in, in, um, uh, at the end of February, the state said this um, in, in, in their rejection of the appeal. The procurator said that Memorial, originally tasked with pursuing the historical truth and honoring the memory of victims of political repression, now aimed to falsify history and transform public consciousness itself from one that remembers the victors to one that repents for the crimes of the Soviet past. So Memorial has been promoting a narrative for years that the state has said, don't do this. Don't, don't talk about the war in Chechnya. Now don't investigate uh, the human rights violations now. And let's not talk talk anymore about stuff with that. We have a museum now, we have a monument. Um, so so let's let's move forward together and let us co-opt uh, remembrance, we the state, we Putin. Yeah, and, and I have to say this this struggle for a, um, a usable past, as it's called, um, has indeed intensified in the last 10, 15 years. And as you as you pointed out, World War II is one of the focal points. And you can even see this rhetoric in Russia's war in Ukraine today. I, I think there, it's not hard to make a direct connection to the construction of this World War II memory and what's happening in, in Ukraine. Can you talk about why this is such a, I mean, you, we've talked a lot about why we wanna remember, you know, 
these repressions. But why is it important for states to construct these usable pasts for, you know, for its own legitimacy? Right. Well, states, uh, of course, Russia is not alone in looking for a usable past. But of course, there's a tendency to want to remember moments of glory rather than moments of defeat. And uh, the victory in the Great Patriotic War has, has become a sort of religion. Uh, and, it's, and, and it's really been um, picked up by youth groups, Nashi, you know, Putin's youth groups. It's been picked up by teachers in schools. Um, and as you can see on the propaganda today, it's, 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 it's been picked up by a large portion of, of, of the Russian people. Uh, we need to have... Uh, we need to have a past that we can be proud of. But what we're seeing is that this usable past, we're seeing uh, the illiberal trends regarding the past, these select, these, uh, select histories being espoused by higher and higher ranking officials. And that gets, that gets very scary because it, it marginalizes victims. It promotes the lie. Um, and that's... Uh, that's why the usable past isn't usable for all that long. And if I could, if I could give a little bit of an example from my research, I, I tried to understand uh, how uh, how the cohort I was researching um, of Gulag survivors who had been communist believers, how could they have retained their faith in the party through the camp experience? And um, I, I actually spoke with some very old Bolsheviks about this uh, in their 90s, but I also spoke to children of survivors of this cohort. And they said it was because um, they, uh, they considered themselves to have been the builders of socialism. So when you cut wood, chips fly. Um, they certainly did not want to feel that they had misspent their lives or that their parents died for nothing. So it was, it was about meaning making. This was, this was a part of our past, and this is how we gave it meaning. Then I get back into the idea of you know, also it was a, a communism served as a kind of a religion. Um, and then there's also the, the traumatic bond factor. But the point is that if individuals who have been through the gulag could even find meaning in a usable past, um, it's, it's, not, it's not unusual that states uh, are also trying to, to use that and mine that and mine of course, uh, um, uh, uh, their popularity among people who do not want to hear about their onerous past. Hello, dear SRB listeners. Many of you enjoyed for years the interviews Sean has been recording with academics, experts, and public figures around the world. This year, we want to do more. We want to experiment with different formats and take the podcast to a whole new level. As you might know, Sean's been working on a series about Soviet everyday life. And right now, I'm starting to collect materials for a themed series on reproductive politics in today's Russia. These explorations are very exciting and we're really thrilled to do something new and engaging for you guys. But it also requires a lot of time and effort on our part because we're doing it for the first time. You can help us succeed by donating to the podcast. It would really mean the world to us. If you would like to support the podcast, please go to the Patreon page at patreon.com 
slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit the Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Uh, here's a question from the Q&A. Um, I'll, I'll just read it here. Professor Adler, thank you so much for your time and your work. Uh, this person, uh, Yuri Kazakov, who's, who's writing the question, also works on Gulag survivors and with Memorial. Uh, when he was an undergrad. And his question is, is about memory and historical justice. Is remembrance hollow without a more thorough political program? Um, I'll just let you answer that one first. There's a couple of, a couple of questions here. So uh, is there a need to be a political program? Well, support of the state would certainly help because uh, the, the, the remembrance initiatives, uh, Memorial's remembrance initiatives were hindered from day one. And when civil society was flourishing, that, that sort of worked because they were still able to do their work. But when the state started cracking down on civil society, it affected, um, it affected uh, individuals uh, who didn't want to tell their stories. They were afraid to tell their stories. And it affected any um, public events uh, where they could be remembered. So it's, it really is important to remember, but there has to be the proper atmosphere, and there's been a there's been a real ambivalence on the part of the state for the last um, number of years as well. Because 2015, they financed um, a, uh, a a very impressive Gulag museum, but the Gulag museum stopped short of any discussion of uh, current human rights violations, and and they really kind of restrict the exhibitions to individual stories rather than looking at let's say the system as a whole, who or what was to blame. Um, if the state takes over remembrance, it's a lot safer for the state. If that doesn't mean that civil society initiatives are hollow. I think that we, we really need bottom-up voices that are as courageous as organizations such as Memorial. Here's another question along these lines. He says, should Memorial have done something differently to ensure the memory of crimes translated itself into a different political culture in Russia. Is there something Memorial didn't do that you think they should have done to, you know, make these revelations more part of, to transform Russian society? It's a very good question. Um, I mean, one could argue, had they not taken on the human rights work, they would have been repressed less. But it was also in their DNA to connect past human rights violations with present human rights violations. They live in an entrenched culture of repression and they, and they were trying to expose uh, uh, past practices, uh, again, so easily connected with present practices. So um, they could have taken the course that the state is offering. The state is offering remembrance uh, uh, along certain lines, um, no settling scores, um, just, just remember the victims um, and thanking Putin for allowing that to happen. It, it really is, He's, there's, a, there's a plaque that thanks Putin at the, at the, at the, um, at the foot of the monument. You know, you uh, read something from Reginsky and I, I want to read uh, um, 
a passage that from a from a talk he gave in 2008. And I always, when I do my courses on Soviet history and Stalinism, I always uh, include this talk. Um, the the passages, and I'd like to get your reactions to it. The passages in remembering the terror. We are incapable of assigning the main roles, incapable of putting the pronouns we and they in their places. This inability to assign evil is the main thing that prevents us from being able to embrace the memory of the terror properly. This makes it far more traumatic. It is one of the main reasons why we push it to the edge of our historical memory. Now, you know, I, I I find this this talk is fascinating for a number of reasons, but one of the things that really struck me about it and continues to strike me is that the terror in the 30s, it, it defies this stark divide between victims and perpetrators, right? The victims, perpetrators, and the perpetrators also become the victims. Um, and, and therefore, you know, he asks, and this is, we need to recognize that we, society, Russian society, Soviet society as a whole, killed our own people. Um, what do you make of, of this passage and, and these points that Roginsky is making? Well, you're very right. He wanted to raise awareness of the gray zone, that there, that there were victims who became perpetrators, perpetrators who became victims. Uh, and he wanted to raise awareness of the fact that there are lots and lots of victims and lots and lots of crimes, but no perpetrators. That, that, question really daunted him. This came from the keynote speech to um, uh, the conference um, Approaches to Stalinism. <clears throat> I was there and I heard this. There was a tremendous applause in the, in, in, in the auditorium. On the eve of this conference, quite interestingly, um, the, the night before 2008, Lenin, um, St. Petersburg Memorial was broken into by um, masked uh, men with um, uh, armed with rubber truncheons and they confiscated Memorial's hard disk um, and really kind of harassed and threatened the organization. And this was on the eve of that conference where he was coming out with this big talk on the memory of Stalinism. He felt that the memory of Stalinism um, uh, could not penetrate public consciousness because there was no real admission about what um, recognizing basically what the Soviet, what the government did to its own people and what people did to other people. In fact, there have also been some frightening stories. Um, uh, I, I saw Nikita Petrov, who I mentioned earlier, he, he was the vice president of Memorial quoted in the New York Times a few days ago about the renewed practice of snitching on neighbors today. And that, that was really frightening to see these. I mean, it's not just that we're seeing uh, uh, the, the, the rhetoric of Putin, which is, which is quite reminiscent of the 30s and it's, and it's meant to generate fear, but the public is picking up on it as well. And that's, take, that's getting its own momentum. That, I mean, this is this is one of the things that fascinates me about the terror, and that is, and I think he said this at some point because I, I must have gotten it from him. He said, you know, yes, we can ascribe all sorts of blame to Stalin, but how do we explain the four million denunciation letters? That's right. That's right. But he he also said we treat the terror as if it was a catastrophe. It was man made, and we have to face who did this. We did this ourselves. Um, and in fact, that's also Sergei Kavalyov, who was the, men, the, the human rights uh, commissioner and actually the only dissident to rise to a very high political position. 
He had been called as a witness to that hearing I mentioned before in 1992 about the ban on the constitutionality of the Communist Party. And he said, well, we're all guilty of this. And then so the officials picked up on that. Fine. So 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 nobody's really guilty if we're all guilty. Um, yeah. That's right. They made the wrong conclusion. Indeed. Indeed. But this these were among among the most profound words um, I have heard him utter. And you you picked up on that correctly. I'm glad you I'm glad you quote him on that. They got the wrong. They made the wrong conclusion. <laughs> well, it's certainly the safe one. Um, finally, you know, we're witnessing a battle over the past in many places around the world, you know, whether it's Russia and Eastern Europe here in the United States, you know, the 1619 project erupted a, a whole discussion about history and it's continuing in China and in India. It's, you know, there's a global struggle over the past. Do you, do you think we're at a particular political conjecture where these these arguments over the past have manifested? Or is this just kind of business as usual? These are always constant in societies and, and our current moment is not that special. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good, um, that's a really good point to make. Uh, I do think we're in a special time. I do think we have, uh, I've called it the age of transitional justice. We may even be on the waning side of the age of transitional justice. It really started coming in the 80s with the, with the, with the Latin America the trials, uh, truth commissions. Then you know we had uh, the uh, international criminal tribunals for Rwanda, Yugoslavia, the South African Truth Commission. There, there was a sort of socio-cultural evolution, again, where I, I mentioned it before, where uh, successor states felt responsible for um, addressing the crimes of predecessor regimes. And for a very long time, you mentioned you mentioned the United States, for a very long time, the United States uh, uh, was exceptional in this, just never addressed its own history. And, and there is a groundswell now uh, as part of the, the global ascent of the human rights discourse that is, that is forcing the conversation finally. It's, it's late in coming to that. Um, I would not include Russia in this because the, the state simply, uh, as I said, Gorbachev probably faced the past better than than, than the state has in, in, in the last 30 years. Uh, Khrushchev a little bit, too. We didn't even talk about him. Um, uh, you know, in, in Western democracies for the first time are starting to to feel that they too cannot turn a blind eye to uh, historical injustices uh, in their societies. And that's, and that's a great move because we can't, we can't claim uh, Western exceptionalism. Eastern Europe also, also was very active on this front. Russia is, is not, and actually, uh, I, can't act, I can't even predict at the moment um, when that would happen because I really did sense, and my interviewees of the mid nineties said it would take a generation uh, before, uh, let's say, um, uh, the first graders who were born in freedom would be able to confront their past. And in fact, the opposite has occurred within one generation. So it's um, the, the uh, entrenched culture of repression runs very deep there and in many societies. So we're, not, we're seeing that transitional justice is not taking root at all.
And so we're, we're going to enter an age where we have to even assess a kind of a post-transitional justice age. Going back to this political moment, you mentioned that there is this kind of period of transitional justice, and but you ended with it's waning. <laughs> um, and and so, uh, do you why why is it waning? And is is there something about this again about this particular moment that you think? is why these conversations are erupting. Um, why it's waning. Very often it's because the promises that were made during transitional justice processes were not kept. Uh, for example, one might say that uh, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which really was a poster child uh, for, for many truth commissions and did some, some really uh, extraordinary groundbreaking, um, um, well, working through South Africa's history. But there's still great um, economic uh, um, deprivation among populations that were already suppressed. So there's still the divisionism, there's still the apartness, apartheid uh, of that. And the, uh, the compensation that was supposed to be granted to victims really didn't come. And possibly even worse, um, those who, for this particular case, didn't get amnesties should have been tried, and a lot of those trials never came about. So the project itself of transitional justice is an aspiration and a promise, um, but many promises didn't get fulfilled, and, 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 and so um, then we have to wonder, uh, what next? Yeah. Yeah. Here's a question from uh, Wilson Bell. Nice to see you here, Wilson. Um, could you say anything about the role of the Orthodox Church in the memory of the Gulag today? That's a very good question because you had a lot of members of the clergy, at, you know, killed in the terror, imprisoned throughout the Soviet period. But at the same time, the Orthodox Church is very close to the Russian state. Um, so it, I don't know if you can speak to the role of the church here. Uh, yes, thank you. Hi, Wilson. Nice that you're there. Um, the Orthodox Church has been an important ally to the state narrative right now because the state is willing to admit that they were victims, and that works for the church too. Uh, we have this iconic image of Putin in front of the, the wall of grief with Patriarch Kirill standing next to him. For the church, um, there were many victims and they were martyrs. Well, a martyr, if you focus on the martyr part, then you don't have to really talk about the perpetrators, who or what was responsible for making them victims. So here's a, well, here's a actually. great question, actually, it's a great, from, it's a from great the, source of support the chat. Um, what about the role of diaspora communities in transitional justice? You know, what role do they play as an important, um, you know, has, has since the collapse of communism, you know, just make it generally, uh, have the diaspora communities played an important role in trying to, uh, you know, bring up this memory and, and keep it alive? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I, I just, I don't know, but what I do think is that new diaspora communities will have to play that role. They will have to move forward with keeping the memory alive. Um, I, I, I heard, uh, uh, an interview with uh, Moratov, the editor of Nova Gazeta, when just after he shut down his own newspaper, and he said, "So we'll, so we will keep those stories alive outside of Russia." 
Um, and, and I think that we're going to have to depend on, for the time being, Russians outside of Russia. I know a number who have left, um, a number who have stayed because they really do want to try to stay, but a number certainly of members of Memorial who have left. Um, and I really, um, I'd, I'd, I'd have to think about that. I mean, we know many, many famous dissidents, of course, who emigrated and, and, and continue to write and to inform the public um, uh, about uh, the dangers of Stalinism. But being within Russia and telling that story there um, is, is a much different situation. But I think, I think that that is the future of the Soviet past for the time being, the diaspora, uh, the, the coming diaspora. The, the, the question also includes, um, she writes, I'm thinking mostly about the Ukrainian diaspora who've been certain, who brought certain recognition of Stalinist atrocities. I mean, the, the Holomor is a perfect example of this, you know, the role of Ukrainian diaspora communities in the United States and also Canada in this has been quite tremendous. Do you, do you know of any other examples of the entire Soviet experience that's similar to the Ukrainian one? Well, the role, I mean, Sam, here's one of the issues involved here. Even if the diaspora, and, and yes, in Canada, there has been a tremendous uh, impulse for that, and they've done very important things. If transitional justice or, or attempts at remembering the past don't come from within, it's not going to have as much sticking power. It's going to be seen as a Western initiative, and it's also going to be to be um, uh, used and usable for othering. So um, while they're very uh, important initiatives and, and, and they should happen, they're not going to have the same power as initiatives that come from within. And, I, and so I don't really... Uh, Nothing immediately comes to mind, also because I've been concentrating on initiatives from within rather than without. Uh, well, um, any other questions? Um, and and as we pause for a moment to let people ask questions, if they have them, if you, Nancy, could think about if there's anything you'd like to say that you haven't, you forgot to say or didn't get a chance to say. Uh, well, maybe I just as a kind of a PS to my last answer. Um, I took part in a, a roundtable this past summer to discuss um, a report called Russia Crimes Against History uh, um, that was uh, uh, commissioned by a, a Paris-based human rights organization. And that was kind of documenting, at least, at least uh, documenting what, what we know about the past and present human rights violations. So what's happened through the diaspora and, and in the West in terms of publishing and documentation is unsurpassed. Um, and actually the other way around, um, there were at least a hundred books on Stalinism published in Russia by Ro the Rospen series on Stalinism, Western books translated into Russian. So, so there has been until now, good interaction um, on this theme. That was Nancy Adler. Nancy Adler is a professor of memory, history, and transitional justice at Nyad Institute for War, Holocaust, and Genocide Studies at the University of Amsterdam. She's authored and or edited several works, with her most recent edited volume being The Future of the Soviet Past, The Politics of Memory and Putin's Russia, published by Indiana University Press. 
Her current research focuses on transitional justice, the legacy of communism, and the history of Memorial Human Rights Organization. Okay, well, thank you very much, Margaret, for for doing uh, Nancy's bio. So I, there are many things that I find interesting about this uh, interview, um, mainly because it, it touches on a lot of the things that I'm personally interested in. But uh, before I kind of give my spiel, um, I'd like to hear what both of you thought. Let's start with you, Rusana. I think the most important uh, takeaway for me was um, the conversation around um, state building, national history, and Stalinist repressions. And I appreciated Nancy's comment on how hard it is to put a positive spin on Stalinist repressions, and that's one of the reasons why um, they've been silenced so long, for so long, um, and for Russia and for state officials, for state builders, it's a very thorny um, and difficult moment of history, right? How do we incorporate this tragedy into a national history that Russians can be proud of? Because obviously, uh, as you know, a politician, you want to create a kind of national history that people can be proud of. Well, at least I think for Russia, that's definitely the case, right? That's why there, there is so much emphasis on the Second World War and the victory, etc. Um, the idea being that we need to look into the past to find some kind of bright moments in the past in order to create a bright future for ourselves, especially at a moment, you know, after the collapse and a few years in, people really wanted to find something to look forward to, right? Something to kind of like rely on. Um, can, can, I, can I ask you a question? Because I, I, I feel like somebody might hear, <laughs> and I thought of this too when, when I was interviewing Nancy, somebody might hear the words putting a positive spin on Stalinist repressions <laughs> and, wonder, and wonder what you mean by that. So, so what, can you kind of flesh out what you mean by this, you know, this effort to put a positive spin? Right. I mean, the, 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 the historical events are just so horrific that there's no way you can get out of it uh, or there, there's no way you can. It's very hard to deal with that part of Soviet history, okay? But we as Russians, we are inheritors of that history. And so we have to live with that kind of burden for years to come, right? And maybe I'm personally, I'm not implicated in Stalinist crimes, but I live with that kind of legacy. And I mean, one way would be to go through, you know, reparations, rehabilitation, and kind of like face that tragic page of history head on and just kind of... um and to find some sort of redemption in that act, right? Um, and I guess that's what I mean. That I guess, I guess that's what I meant by it's hard to find a positive spin. It's hard to kind of like work around that page of our history. Um, and, and I guess 
Russian politicians decided to go the other way, to silence it, to pretend like it never happened or to kind of like smooth things out or, you know, to leave out certain unsavory details. Thinking about it from like an American context, I mean, we have this conversation about reparations here too, with in the in terms of slavery, and seventeen to eighteen million people were victims in Russia prisons, colonies, camps. So, like, this means everyone must have known someone, right? I mean, the population's what, like, one forty million, something like that. So, seventeen to eighteen is like, I mean, this is major. I, I, this, the state obviously very, I mean, I guess that's the question. Did it effectively shift the narrative and obfuscate responsibility? I mean, in the United States, you know, we continue to have this conversation about reparations. It continues to be highly controversial. Um, in Russia, I'm not familiar if that conversation is going on. And it seems like any time that the, the, the topic is broached, it's just shut down because, what, foreign actors or something like that? I mean, that's what they can just call any kind of... I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so this, this goes to the, the, one of the issues that I think is most difficult, and, and this goes back to... The, uh, I, I read this passage from a speech that Arseny uh, Ragnitsky gave, um, one of the founders of Memorial. And, you know, Stalinism, it's not one of these clear-cut victim-perpetrator binaries because the perpetrators became victims... And sometimes the victims can become perpetrators. Um, it was a, you know, it was it was a car- carnivalesque moment. The terror. I mean, just si- just signaling out, uh, separating out the 1937-38, the entire, you know, Stalinist repressions. That's a that's a much larger story. Um, but I think in terms of the terror, which tends to be the focus of a lot of this memory. Um, and, and, you know, rehabilitations and things like this, you know, it, it, as, uh, Raginsky said, you know, we need to come to terms with the fact that we killed our own people and it was a collective participation, regardless of, you know, you, as you rightly can pin Stalin and the Stalinist leadership, but at the same time, you have to somehow wrap your head around the fact that there is a perverse and macabre popular element to this violence and and for a country for a country to come to terms with that on its uh, without external pressure like if you think of for example how germany dealt with the holocaust and nazism the fact that there was outside pressure i think was a major um uh contributor to the coming to terms with that. And also, of course, the Nuremberg trials and all of this stuff, again, outside pressure. Um, and But Russia hasn't had that. And it would be surprising if Russian society came to terms with Stalinist repression. This is not to say that they shouldn't. They absolutely should. And, and the path that's being taken, I think, is, a, is, is, is horrible. But at the same time, it would be it would be very unique historically for a society to come to terms with that kind of violence. 
Germany is an interesting example because then, like, I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, like, what's the, you know, what kind of outside pressure could be put on Russia in that same way? But it's just completely a different situation. I mean, location-wise, size-wise, economically, like, the who, you know, Russia's foreign relations. I mean, is there really uh Do you think that there is an overlap here in like comparing Russia and Germany on this subject in like in terms of uh how they address their problematic past um no i don't think there's any comparison actually i don't think you know sure okay you could probably find some comparisons but in the big scheme of things i don't see any real comparison yeah russia's just this unique totally unique well, you know, just take for the fact that you you know Germany was a defeated nation, right? Uh, and and the perpetrators that were still alive were were put on international trial amongst other types of smaller you know trials. Um, there was um, and and Russia, the Soviet Union, basically dismantled itself, right? It wasn't a conquered nation or a conquered. Um, yeah, it wasn't a conquered nation from outside to to leverage that defeated position to force um, a reckoning with these issues. Now, of course, it was tried, you know, Memorial and, and others around it tried, but it just never went really far um, or far enough. So, you know, a lot of these, I think the questions of Stalin's repression, you know, as as you said, Rusana, it, it continues to hang, um, especially because, you know, with Stalin, you also have World War II, and how do you reconcile those two things? And now we'll have a whole new set of um, tragic historical events that we'll have to face again. And... You know, while you were talking, it got me to thinking that for probably for some Russians, uh, leaving the country is a way of escaping of that collective responsibility. I mean, it's also a question of personal safety and future of your family, etc. But also by leaving, you kind of extricate yourself from this... um, tricky situation from like having to deal with that collective present and past uh, in the future like by being like okay I'm not with you guys anymore I'm out I when I was reading up on Raginsky he had this quote that I like that the state is always right as long as it can handle its enemies <laughs> which uh and I was thinking like regime change in Russia I mean according to my understanding, it seems like it's typically forced. So to establish like an effective truth commission, Putin would have to give up like serious control. And transitional justice is probably like a scary thing for Putin because, I mean, well, obviously, yeah, like punishing leaders and organizations that are trying to make, you know, according to them, trying to make their country more powerful, eliminate competition, strong, like strong country. Uh, directly addresses his own indiscretions and opens the door for people to, you know, I guess people are already calling him a hypocrite, but <laughs> get to have now evidence to to prove it. Um, so it seems like he purposefully didn't provide an option to 
address the past. And transitional justice, I was thinking, like, makes sense in a democratic context. But outside of that, uh, it doesn't. I don't see how it could work outside of a democratic context, you know? Well, I, I think this is the this is what's actually embedded in the whole idea, right, of tr- of the the fact that it's called transitional. You're transitioning from one thing to a, another. Now, on the one hand, I think it's a transitional justice in the sense of bringing victims, survivors, the traumas, whatever it may be, to light. Right? There's a transition from darkness to light. Right, and and bringing these and and reincorporating these people who've been marginalized, either because the system marginalized them or the shame, the trauma of descendants has uh, mar- marginalized them. You know, there is a concept in Holocaust studies of generational trauma, and I do wonder about this in the in the Russian case, considering the multiple traumas of the twentieth century in the Soviet Union. Right. Um, but I think also within that term of transitional justice is a political uh, um, goal, and that goal is from authoritarian, you know, regimes that have committed this violence to democratic ones that reconcile or you know reconfigure the the democratic polity. Um, out of the ashes or even the the trauma of those historical events. So I think there is dem- democracy or, you know, whatever you want to call it, non-authoritarianism, let's say, is part, I think, of that's necessary to make that, you know, transition. Well, I since, since we started talking about transitional justice, I, I had a comment rather than a takeaway, and I wanted to ask your guys opinion so i found i find um, transitional justice to be a rather controversial term both as a policy tool and an academic term because mostly predominantly it is directed outward right i've never heard about transitional justice being talked about in the u.s right and I wonder if transitional justice belongs to the United States as a term and as a tool, right? Because the legacy of slavery, segregation, white supremacy still abound. And yet the transitional justice framework is not really used in the U.S. context. It's like there are certain countries that need to go through the transition and there are certain countries that are already there, right? And since the U.S. is democratic... U.S. doesn't need transitional justice, even though we are all aware of the fact that there are a lot of issues in the U.S. that need to be redressed. There is a lot of darkness that needs to be brought to light. And yet the U.S. and maybe certain Western European countries are kind of beyond the pale where they've already transitioned. It's all good. And there's all these other countries, backward countries that need to catch up. Yeah, and and be and you know again back to this notion of the the polit- political transition that's that I see as embedded within the concept. Um, 
you know, how do you do transitional justice? I mean, just as as you said, Rusana, there are some countries who aren't there, and there are some countries who are already there. So how do the ones that are already there deal with these issues of, you know, crimes, trauma, repressions? How does, you know, the British or the French deal with the crimes of its empire, for example? I think your questioning of, of that is is completely right on. Um, because we do seem to think of transitional justice, right, in terms of uh, South Africa, uh, the Yugoslavia. Um, here we're speaking of Stalinism. We've already mentioned, you know, Nazism and the Holocaust. So, but, you know, these kinds of mass repressions, crimes, however you want, atrocities, they are committed by, democ- they have been committed by democratic states and sometimes also in the name of democracy. Uh, so it, it, I think it's a perfectly legitimate question to ask. I don't, I don't know if I have the answer, but I think it's worth asking. This is fascinating stuff, and and you know, I think it, it's. Um, I mean, we didn't even really talk about Memorial, right? Because it just brings up such larger questions that are not particular to the region or even that that period of time, whether it's you know the 1930s or the 1980s. I mean, we can, you know, we, we this. I think this conversation that we've been having points to the fact that these issues still hang over our head in a variety of different ways. So, so thanks. So I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and as you just heard, um, I'm with Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. And as you well know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please help us out by sharing it on social media. Tell your friends and family to listen in. Um, drop us a line. Let us know how we're doing, what you like, what you don't like on Facebook, Twitter, or at srbpodcast.org. We'd love to hear what you have to say. And as always, here at the SRB Podcast, we'd love to have your financial support. Uh, this is a nonprofit educational endeavor. In many respects, one could say it's a service. We're trying to illuminate some of these controversial, even well-known or even little-known issues uh, of um, Eurasia's past and present, uh, so you know we can all collectively learn more. And to do this, we need support of individuals like yourselves. So please help take a moment to become a patron and become a, a contributor to the SRB podcast, so we can try to do some other things and and continue our mission. So, well, until next time, bye.